the last post. There's a new episode every day, including today. Half a glass of water. It speaks for itself. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other good places. Places, 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 places. New water. New The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4143 of this most august and widelyest respected of all of the one audio newspapers currently operational in this strikingly visual of worlds. I am Andy Zaltzman, <laughs> and if there's one thing in the world I know, then A, I should probably read up a bit more about the world, and B, it's almost certainly something about sport. I am in London, a city in lockdown. It literally has not moved from its place by the Thames for upwards of 250 years, maybe more. And joining me from across the ponds, from a city that never sleeps well, that, that's the word in that sentence people always miss out, the city that never sleeps well, or indeed long enough, New York, uh, not one, but two guest co-hosts from the USA itself, Josh Gondelman, and from India, currently... <laughs> Delayed in the USA due to a topic we will be turning to shortly. Anuvab Pal. Hello, Andy. Hello. Hi. Um, how's how's uh, how's America? This room is terrific. Yeah. <laughs> and but the rest of it. Oh, shambles. All oh, right. Okay. <laughs> well, you you stay safely ensconced in that uh, <laughs> that comforting studio in uh, in New York. So, so talk us through why you're why you're still in America. So apparently, Andy, nobody told me, but there's this virus going around. Oh right, okay. Yeah, right, apparently yeah. it's a thing. Um, yep. I guess I guess I should talk to people more. But uh, <laughs> I was in Silicon Valley doing a show, and I don't know if you know, but Silicon Valley is now mostly a part of the Republic of India. <laughs> <laughs> it's a place. It's called the Bay Area. It's uh, we do all the technology. It mostly belongs to us now. And I had gone there, and I was just supposed to have a layover of one night in New York City. But uh, the airlines apparently don't want to take people across oceans anymore. Right. And so now I am in this studio. I'm living in this studio mm-hmm. with Josh for the whole weekend. I am just here for the company. Right. That's great. That's a, yeah. a lovely story of you know, when you said bridges. when you said that you came, you went to Silicon Valley and were delayed by a virus. At first, I thought computer virus. Of course, <laughs> all the planes stopped flying. It was like a Y2K type thing that hit 20 years late. <laughs> That's 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 exactly what it is, Josh. It's the flu <laughs> that met a Microsoft bug. That's what happened. Oh, that's a, that's a story of romance. Exactly. Uh, as always, the section of the bugle is going straight in the bin this week. A homeschooling section. What to teach children whose schools have been coronavirus off? Uh, if you, as a parent, are too busy with your own stuff to really pay attention. Hashtag 21st century parenting. Hashtag those phones don't check themselves. So we have a... Official bugle guide to how to keep your children educated and occupied when they're stuck at home. A philosophy class. Just get them to write a 10,000-word essay entitled, What is an Orange? Uh, maths. Make them calculate the surface area of absolutely everything in your house. Um, then divide it by the number of units of electricity used if you switch everything on at the same time. Uh, language. Uh, for a language class, just get them to call random overseas numbers and pretend to be... Uh, from an internet provider threatening to cut off their service and see if they can uh, work out um, the uh, the 
entertaining international swear words that will inevitably come back at them. And uh, if you want a really convenient all-in-one lesson for your home, temporarily homeschooled children, encompassing chemistry, physics, biology, sociology, economics, geography, history, and politics, just get them to cook an egg. That's basically, <laughs> basically everything, if you read enough into it. Anyway, that section is in the bin. Uh, we are recording on the 6th of March in uh, the year 2020. On this day in 1869, the periodic table was launched by Russian science boffin Dmitry Mendeleev. Up until then, uh, when Mendeleev uh, laid out that there were loads of different elements, no one really knew that metal wasn't just metal, but was in fact lots of different types of metal, or that gases couldn't be categorised as either air or stinky air. Um, Mendeleev made things a hell of a lot more complicated and things have been unravelling ever since. So uh, we pay tribute to the man who 150 years ago stopped stuff from just being stuff. Thanks a f*** of a lot, you dead bastard. Uh, Also on the... uh, Tomorrow, the 7th of March, is the 100th anniversary of the 7th of September 1907, a day which, for some reason, historians still don't understand, happened 13 and a half years late. (laughs) Top story, uh, once again, the coronavirus is dominating this planet, which is pretty impressive, given how small it is, and uh, it's yet to make an official statement of its own. So we're really having to interpret what its motives are as a virus, they're very elusive, these uh, these little creatures. Look, this planet is in full quarantine. No aliens have been allowed to land at Roswell this week. That's the first week with no alien landings at Roswell since 1956, if my sources are to be believed. Here in Britain, we are at panic stations. Obviously, it's Britain, uh, so at panic stations, the panic trains are running late. Everyone is just standing, looking grumpy on the platform, muttering, when is this bloody panic actually going to arrive? Probably won't even be able to get on it when it does. What's the point? I'm just going to give up and stay calm for the day. This country can't even bloody panic on time anymore. Um, The British government's released a 28-page battle plan to take on the coronavirus. Compared, As we mentioned last week, it had a 30-page plan for the Brexit negotiations. So the coronavirus is mathematically 93.3% as toxic as Brexit. That puts it in perspective. This is bad. It's, it's, it's really But You can't fight maths. Or if you do fight maths, maths will choke slam you to the canvas and start differentiating some calculuses all over your face. So that's the state the world is in. Uh, Josh and uh, and Anuvab, um, uh, what's the the American reaction uh, to it been, uh, Josh? I mean, uh, is uh, are people fully on board in the battle against the virus? It's kind of going two ways over here. Some people have been washing their hands every six minutes, but then this morning on the way here, uh, I was in a combination coffee shop slash ice cream parlor, and I saw a woman order a cookies and cream milkshake for breakfast. So on the other hand, some people are just going straight f*** it. (laughs) (laughs) The SFI, as I believe it's known. (laughs) The SFI, yeah, that's the protocol. Um. And uh, uh, what about what about in India? Um, Because there haven't been that many cases in India uh, yet, but um, there's been quite some criticism of uh, Narendra Modi. As it tends to be, you know, basically just for him breathing, which is generally a fair fair criticism. (laughs) Correct, Andy. A couple of things here. Well, first of all, you know, we're specialists in fudging numbers. So uh, the official the official reported cases are thirty. Uh, but it's it could be anywhere between 30 and 50 million. Uh, 
Right, uh, okay. Because, you know, when you've got 1.3 billion people, you just abbreviate and say 30. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a rounding error. It's it's a number thing. And Prime Minister Modi, the moment he heard, he's very with it. He's with fat, with whatever's fashionable, you mm-hmm. know, just like Bolsonaro in Brazil, just like, you know, some people here I won't name because I'm in your country, Josh. That's okay. <laughs> uh, so when he heard that the coronavirus was a thing, he said, I want to be part of this game. Mm-hmm. So... You know, he's privately got himself a VIP coronavirus <laughs> because he's allowed to. But I, I'd just like to mention one thing. You know, we're an ancient culture. We've had herbal remedies for, for, from nature for, for thousands of years. So I, I don't know this nonsense about washing your hands as a remedy, Andy. Josh, uh, I'd like to read out a few Indian remedies for coronavirus. Please. That were <laughs> discovered in the ancient Hindu text of the Atharva Veda mm-hmm. 5,000 years ago, which is a Veda I just made up. Okay, right. That's the best um, kind of Veda. <laughs> that's one of my favorite Vedas. Uh, so these are the things that the last time the coronavirus hit India in BC, um, <laughs> This is that's what be- we did. That's before cricket in India, I should emphasize. That's the, <laughs> the PCs. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. A week before cricket. <laughs> so this is what we did. And it was it was all good. In one month it was gone. So this is these are the best remedies <laughs> okay. currently. Um, so don't wash your hands, but yeah. help other people wash their hands. That's beautiful. Right. That's that's one we did. Uh, shower out in the open. Mm-hmm. Uh, read Plato. <laughs> that always worked. Listen to the bugle, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. that's good. That goes back a while. Yeah, yeah. We've been at this, and you know, ancient Hindus know of you. What can I say? <laughs> uh, ban avocado and yoga. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that, uh, that will get a lot of support from a lot of, of the right-wing media. That <laughs> Yes, yes. And it's a cure. And the last one is ban T20 cricket. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know about the Western world, Andy, Josh. Uh, no, that's pretty good. I mean, I grew, up, uh, I grew up outside Boston, Massachusetts, and your methods sound better than our methods, which is the patented Mark Wahlberg method of being racist to Asian people. That's <laughs> how he avoids coronavirus. <laughs> Well, just try and keep that under wraps for at least for the duration of this episode, Josh, if you could. Um, <laughs> this is not this is not my methodology. I've disavowed it. <laughs> You're just going by best practices. Yeah. Oh, I've been. People know I'm from Boston. I go around if I see uh, if I see someone with a, a tag on their luggage that says they were recently in China, I kiss them on the mouth. <laughs> I just want to show. I'm like, hey, yeah. look, we're all cool. Yeah. And you've you've done that unrelated to the virus. Yes, 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 yes. I just uh, I'm a, I'm a I I don't travel that much, and so I just kiss strangers on the mouth who have, and I try to absorb the travel through osmosis. <laughs> <laughs> We're all learning some valuable biology today. Mm-hmm. We've had yeah. history. History from Anavab, now biology from Josh. This is the most <laughs> educational podcast you can possibly listen to. What I've found is people who have recently been to other countries uh, like to punch me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you kiss them and they're not aware of it, yes, that tends that, to be the reaction. That, I guess <laughs> that could be the X factor. <laughs> um, Anavab, uh, Rahul Gandhi, who's yes. uh, you know, one of the prominent opposition politicians in India, um, ad- advised Modi to, quote, Quit wasting India's time playing the clown, which does raise a question. What kind of circuses has Rahul Gandhi been going to? Because uh, that is one f***ing sinister clown. Um, 
How's the circus, darling? It was great, Mum. The acrobats were incredible. There was this guy dangling around on a rope, waggling axes everywhere. There was a woman doing one-arm handstands on a big rusty metal spike. The Cossack horseman had to be seen to be believed, and the clown killed some Muslims and fostered a regressive nationalism. That sounds like a lovely day out, darling. Uh, he, uh, he also... Um, said that uh, what the government should be doing, uh, Rahul Gandhi said, that uh, to focus the attention of every Indian on taking the coronavirus challenge, that is how to get the world on board with this fight against the virus, make an internet sensation like the ice bucket challenge. Just have celebrities hilariously challenging each other to wash their hands really thoroughly. I thought you were saying you dump a bucket of coronavirus on your head. <laughs> That that's a Friday night out in Mumbai. <laughs> and and Andy, that was a fairly good summary of the history of India for the last fifty years. <laughs> um, elsewhere around the world, Italy has closed all schools and universities. Further evidence of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Um, <laughs> and in the Sistine Chapel, uh, the creation of Adam bit of Michelangelo's uh, Mickey Paintbrush's famous. Uh, paintings in the Sistine Chapel. That's been um, repainted to show God and Adam both wearing latex gloves to reduce the chance of infection should their fingers touch. So uh, it's good to see Italy taking it seriously. Yeah, God and Adam, they should just bump elbows. That's what the World (laughs) Health Organization says. Yeah, exactly. Um, 23 members of parliament in Iran have tested positive, which I think might be a a tribute to Michael Jordan or David Beckham. I'm not entirely sure... (laughs) What? And the South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, has declared war on the coronavirus. And um, now this, this I find fascinating, this, this, the, the military terminology to get people on t- declaring war, uh, you know, throw the military at. And I was looking at s- some of the, uh, the writings in Sun Tzu's Art of War. Um, now, what, what would the great uh, two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old military strategist uh, Sun Tzu have had to say about this? Now, obviously... Sun Tzu, or as his friends called him, Sunny T, was uh, from near Wuhan, where the coronavirus was invented uh, by an enterprising pangolin who wanted to raise awareness of animal rights issues in Chinese retail. Um, So, just to be on the safe side, I have translated Sun Tzu's words into English, so you can't catch the linguistic version of coronavirus from... I don't know if he's still infectious, but he is dead, so let's not take any chances. Um, I don't want to catch that. You you absolutely don't. Uh, He said, said, there's a number of things we can learn from Sun Tzu about the the fight against the coronavirus. He said, if the mind is willing, the flesh could go on and on without many things, which is essentially Sun Tzu telling us that uh, severe respiratory illness is 99% psychological. Um, He said, to know your enemy, you, you must become your enemy, which I think... Um, means fancy dress. So just dress up like a virus with a crown and you'll be immune. Um, Be extremely subtle, he wrote, even to the point of formlessness. Be extremely mysterious, even to the point of soundlessness. Oh, sorry, now that's from Sun Tzu's lesser-known follow-up, Sun Tzu's Art of Seduction, um, (laughs) also known as the Art of Four. Um, He said, uh, move swift as the wind and closely formed as the wood, attack like the fire and be still as the mountain, essentially volcano. Um, He said, ponder and deliberate before you make a move. Uh, Sorry, that was also from the Art of Seduction, I think. And um, the uh, worst strategy of all is to besiege walled cities. Um which could be from the art of seduction with a small misprint, I guess. Uh, So uh, many things we can learn from the wisdom of the ancient. There's something I was listening to, Josh, uh, Andy, in this country, where the governor of New York said yesterday, you know, 
all we're telling you to do if you've got the virus is stay at home and watch Netflix. Mm-hmm. How bad can that be? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I thought to myself because I guess the the death rate is pretty low. It's 2-3%. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for 98% of the people they're saying don't talk to anybody, stay at home and watch streaming mm-hmm. platforms. And I'll have to say this is if that's the thing, it's my favorite disease so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, they really skip the step of the hospital. Yeah. Uh, also, for for 98% of the people that'll work fine, right? But 2% of the people are going to die watching Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> is that significantly lower than people that die watching it normally? <laughs> I don't know. You're right. That could. There probably people have done that already. <laughs> Trump has been been criticised. Uh, some of his opponents have claimed he reacted slowly, uh, then gratuitously blamed his political opponents, played down the threat by belittling scientific evidence, and well, didn't just shoot the messengers, but strafed anything that even looked like it might be a messenger. Then uh, panicked uh, belatedly and threw money at the problem. So I mean, he, not really. I mean, this is basically how he deals with every single issue from you know climate change to the syrian crisis to uh, what to have for dinner essentially i mean this is just absolutely classic trump he might be getting on a bit but he's still got the chops people elected him. this is definitely this is classic trump like he's telling people don't worry about it he absolutely seems like the kind of guy who would put off telling people they should get tested <laughs> just <laughs> wait till they figure it out on their own just nah, nah, that wasn't me <laughs> come from somewhere else <laughs> Josh, Andy, I have a question. Please. Um, So President Trump, the moment the crisis was announced, passed it off to his second in command, Mm -hmm. uh, the vice president, saying, this is now going to be Mike Pence's problem. He's going to deal with it. I understand that. It's a very Indian way to solve problems. When a massive crisis hits, find your closest sycophant and say, he's your guy. Yeah. And then immediately retreat and run away to some vacation home. (laughs) Um, Would you say that that, uh, Trump is adopting Eastern techniques of leadership (laughs) that we in the third world are so used to? I think that's it. I think this is his kind of more holistic. He's like really uh, taking other points of view into perspective, trying things that are outside his comfort zone. No, I think he's just an idiot <laughs> and a coward. He um he and it's not even virus specific, right? He like he's kind of pushing off the pushing off the responsibility, keeping the information, of, uh, keeping the CDC from releasing information. This isn't disease specific. He just doesn't like people knowing things. <laughs> Knowledge is very, yeah. very dangerous. He's against it for himself, and he's against it in others. He, we people talk about low information voters. He's a low information president. <laughs> <laughs> Works very well in governing yeah. the world today. Very little comes in, very little comes out. <laughs> Andy, uh, now in in Britain, where the latest Caesar in power, Mr. Boris Johnson, uh, has declared yeah. in the document you mentioned earlier that people might be still getting paid while at home. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, he also this week he called on the media to be responsible and not to sort of issue scare stories and false information. Which, I mean, you've just got to admire the barefaced balls of that level of flagrant hypocrisy. But I guess this crisis has you know brought out different aspects uh, of uh, of things in many ways. Actually, I think Boris Johnson probably really respects the coronavirus because in, in some ways they're. <laughs> Kindred spirits, they play on our basest fears. They do most of their work unseen. Um, there's a lot of very unaccountable stuff going on behind the scenes, and they're not really fussed about the poor. So um, it's, uh, you know, they're very much peas in a disease-ridden pod. Brexit is just a pre-quarantine, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he yeah, was ahead are. of this wave. Now, Andy, you know, I, I have heard your monologue and diatribe uh, um, 
your piece of philosophical writing on the invisible hand, if you remember, <laughs> of the marketplace. Oh, yes. yeah. And I think one of the places the invisible hand seems to be coming in is the airline industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the head of the Airline yes. Trade Association said, it's very hard to make money from the airline business if the planes don't fly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that that seems fairly accurate. If if people are not going to work, work is hard to generate any revenue. I think you would agree in your as an economist, Andy and Josh. Um, you you look like a PhD in economics. <laughs> yeah, I do look like I don't have a lot of fun, and people don't like me. Uh, how how do you think? What do you think is going to happen to the world economy if people are physically not doing anything economicsy? Well, I think we've got to grind it down to a full halt, right? If some people stop doing things and other people are still doing things, that's going to create an imbalance. But if we all stop, we're going to create an economic stasis wherein everybody just keeps what they have. And I think we can we can uh, live there for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> also, I mean, I think we need to take uh, inspiration from you know, the likes of Elvis Presley, who uh, you know died in what, 1977, was it? Um, and yeah, in many ways, he's generated more business since then. So this is what the airlines need to do: is they need to, you know, really get people starting to get nostalgic about those old airlines that they used to use mm-hmm. before they had to shut down, and you know, buying loads of merch, and um, you know, going to you know, themed restaurants where uh, an aeroplane impersonator will you know pretend to be a flight from a, uh, a no longer existing airline and, and you know they need to just you know, adapt to the change circumstances similarly they could do it the way the way Tupac did after his death right they could release a ton of kind of lesser quality airplanes and then <laughs> uh, start rumors that there are actually airplanes flying to Cuba even though no one's ever really seen them and then eventually there would just be a hologram of an airplane that people would pay to see <laughs> there we go we're already providing the solutions. Human ingenuity. <laughs> well, I, I'd just like to add this uh, current release from the Chinese, from the very liberal, objective Chinese media mouthpiece, mm-hmm. Xinhua. Um, and they have put out a thing today that said, don't touch your face during during this thing as a mm-hmm. remedy. Don't touch your face. For that matter, don't touch anyone else's face either. <laughs> well, that one I think is more important, right? Like, if it's on my hands, if there's a, a virus that wants to get me and it's on my hands, it's going to get to my face. My <laughs> arms connect right to it. <laughs> uh, well, that leads us into a steps to keep yourself safe from the coronavirus pull-out supplement. Well, uh, a lot of people have said you, uh, masks are uh, only of limited use. Um, I would say we're all wearing a mask anyway. We're not all hiding behind some kind of mask, so we're probably fine. Um, we have a bugle guide to how to stop yourself touching your own face. Now, there are a number of things you can do to stop yourself touching your face. One is keep your hands busy. So you've got to make sure your hands have something more important to do than you know, scratch your face or stroke your own uh, eyelids or whatever you like to do with your hands on your face. So perhaps try keeping a live snake on your person at all times. That generally requires a fair amount of dedicated handwork. Uh, alternatively, smear your hands in molten tar. Uh, you don't want that getting on your face, you vain hypocrites. Um, another thing you can do is to go to sleep with one of the following uh, recordings playing on a loop. Your face is so beautiful, it dissolves fingers. (laughs) Or, your face is magic, if you touch it, it will turn into Steve Bannon's face. 
Uh, that should subliminally enable you to wake up or with a lifelong fear of touching your own face. Uh, another way, uh, aside from not touching your face, of avoiding the coronavirus is prayer. Obviously one of the most statistically effective forms of disease avoidance uh, historically. But what type of prayer is most effective? Should you ask your chosen deity to save all of humanity, which is a bit of a stretch for any deity these days, no matter how omnipotent, it's a complicated world, to save just you and your family, which is a... A bit selfish, um, you know, in your, <laughs> in your own personal bubble. You think you're so f***ing special. Are you a kind of top-level elite sports star thanking the Almighty for, for getting them a gold medal? I'm, honestly, turn it up. Uh, or should you simply appeal to your deity to save the stock markets? Um, I think that's probably the best thing we can do at this stage. Just pray to God to save the markets because they will not save themselves. And also... Should your prayer be accompanied by a sacrifice, it's always better to err on the safe side and slay at least some animals to carry favour with uh, the Almighty. But remember, if you do, please wash your hands thoroughly after slaughtering your 100 head of oxen. Uh, in fact, current guidelines from the International Association of Animal Sacrificial Offerings is to wash your hands thoroughly after each five oxen slain. Uh, also, superstitions. Now, uh, traditionally in the past, before we had um, kind of modern medicine that uh, keeps us alive today, superstitions were hugely effective. They're not called super for nothing. They genuinely work um, very occasionally. Uh, what you could uh, try putting your left shoe on first um, before all your other clothing. Um, you can try throwing salt over your shoulder every five seconds and you will find that people steer well clear of you, thus leaving you well away from potential infectors. Um, then there's... Uh, the famous old um, superstitious saying, find a penny, pick it up, and all day long you'll be worried that you might get virused by the penny. Who's touched that penny? God knows, and he ain't telling. Patient confidentiality and all that. Put the penny back on the floor and wash your hands. <laughs> One thing that people have been saying is that you're supposed to wash your hands for uh, for 20 seconds, right? That's the amount of time that it's supposed to take to, to yes. actively kill the germs. If you only do it for 18 or 19 seconds, the germs have... No respect. They know you can't commit to anything, and they just treat you <laughs> like dirt. They walk all over you. What I've been doing is instead of washing my hands for 20 seconds several times a day, I get up, I wash my hands for 260 seconds, knock the whole day of hand washing out right at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> That's 13 hand washings. So people, yeah. it, and it, it's just six and a half minutes. Right. It's but, like but, you're loading up your Metro card. Correct. Yes, 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 yes. Right. Why would I want to pay every time? <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do you not have a problem, though, that then your fingers get quite wrinkly and actually that gives the viruses a you know, place to hide? Yes, uh, that is that is a problem, but they're, they're so clean and then by the time they're smoothed right. out, I can spot the viruses because oh, they're okay. clustered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay, well, that's good. <laughs> I'd just like to go back for one second to oh, the yeah. remedy Andy mentioned of animal sacrifice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, that always works. Um, <laughs> in, in Nepal, for the longest time, they used to sacrifice goats before any important family event, mm -hmm. um, school exams, uh, elections, any sort of event, marriage, they'd sacrifice either oxen or, or a goat. They found this really interesting odd situation where they ran out of animals. <laughs> oh, no. And then they passed a law that said you have to only sacrifice an animal for an important reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so, so I think if we adopted the Nepalese technique, when the Western world, everyone was given one animal. <laughs> and, and you sacrifice it only when the virus got really bad. Yeah. You know, it's all about rationing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And about prioritizing. Yes. That's like that old, uh, that finally puts that old Nepalese uh, piece of wisdom into context of <laughs> sacrifice after wedding, never been sicker, sacrifice before wedding, in the clear. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, it's been it's been a tough tough time for religion. The uh, the sh- the shrine, the Christian shrine at Lourdes in France, had to close some of uh, its pools in which pilgrims swim to be healed from diseases as a precaution because of the disease. That's not the greatest PR for the miracle healing industry if the pools that you bathe in to get better are now too dangerous. Well, hold on. I think I think this is an even this is it speaks even more to their power because now they're so right. powerful you don't even have to get in them to have the healing effect. <laughs> well, um <laughs> they've said that pilgrims are, are still welcome, but I mean, lords without the healing bath, that's like vegan friendly cockfighting. It's just <laughs> never going to be quite the same. <laughs> the, those satan, those underground satan fights I've been attending <laughs> just don't have the same zip to them. <laughs> the texture is weird. <laughs> well, in the South Indian town of Tirupati, which is considered one of the most uh, holy sites for Hindus, mm-hmm. they decided that they were not they were not going to allow mass congregations. So the temple is now being evacuated. It's completely empty, which in India it means down to the last four million people. <laughs> <laughs> Virus showbiz news now, and well, no aspect of human activity has escaped the uh, microscopic invisible claws of the uh, coronavirus. We've talked about the tragic side effect of sport being postponed or cancelled or generally desportified just at the time the world needs as many pointless reality-numbing distractions as possible. And now the film industry has um, been forcibly jumped onto that bandwagon. The new James Bond film, No Time to Die, has been delayed by seven months due to coronavirus uh, concerns. That's always risky with a James Bond film because uh, in that seven-month period, one of Bond's many sexual conquests in the film could have become heavily pregnant and Bond is (laughs) never really at his best when forced to face up to the consequences of his actions and take some responsibility um, for what he's done. After all these years of James Bond having unprotected sex, it's unbelievable that the coronavirus is the one that sets him back. (laughs) (laughs) I, it's amazing. Daniel Daniel Craig uh, keeps saying that that's going to be his last Bond movie, right? Every time he's like, ah, this is the last time I do one of these. And finally, because of a global pandemic, he might be right. <laughs> also, why delay it? Just cut the first word out of the title, call it Time to Die, and it feels like extra <laughs> contemporary. There has been a, a yeah, significant cultural response, uh, even in the world of, of comedy. A number of uh, co- new com- comedy acts have sprung up amidst the coronavirus global concern, including a new character act, a Pandemic, uh, of a hypochondriac super spreader, um, sold out a stadium tour in Britain and then cancelled the entire run on safety grounds, uh, thus becoming the first self-satirising um, comedian in, in the universe. Uh, covid is a parody of the ancient Roman poet Ovid. Um, a very entertaining act based on doing poems in Latin about flu-like diseases and the social panic they cause. And uh, Germain the Germy German, fairly self-explanatory. Um, and, uh, yeah, all, and competitive hand-washing has taken off as a spectator sport as well. You've got traditional freestyle and, of course, Greco-Roman hand-washing that's uh, really packing out the stadium in the in the world of comedy i found the shows i've been doing have had have been fairly empty and it's either people cautiously staying at home because of coronavirus or business as usual hard to tell <laughs> that's right my my crowd were well, 20 years ahead of the coronavirus <laughs> 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 
race to get ritually humiliated by Donald Trump over the next few months news now. And, well, the Democratic race, um, Josh, has uh, rather dramatically clarified itself uh, over the last uh, week or so. Joe Biden has surged on Super Tuesday and um, uh, it's basically now him and Bernie Sanders left Pete Buttigieg, quack, Amy Klobuchar, quack, Bloomberg, quack, Elizabeth Warren, quack, Rick Moranis ruled himself out, returning to acting instead, uh, Roosevelt, still dead, Bumgarner, sticking with ba- baseball, uh, Markle, well, join the dots, people, jo- join the dots, That surely that's what this whole thing, Meghan Markle for president, it has to happen, uh, Mouse, uh, if America isn't ready for a female president, it's not ready for an animated mouse either, uh, he's out of the race, Putin, Let's not rule him out. Uh, Trump, well, he could be the only person who could beat Donald Trump. Um, Oliver, ineligible, uh, no Smurfs rule. Uh, Condobolu still mulling it over. And Gondelman, are you going to stand? I, you know, I, I'm my service to the American people is I'm not running. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, if only more people had that noble, public-spirited attitude, um, then the world might be very, very different today. So remaining, we have Biden, Sanders, and... Uh, Tulsi Gabbard is still officially in the race, I believe, although it is rumoured that she'd entirely forgotten she was still running and actually had to cancel a violin lesson she'd scheduled for Super Tuesday. <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard is like kind of the the like oldest kid left playing Little League where like you can still do it, but it's embarrassing at this point. <laughs> Just leave and find something else to do with your time. Now, Josh, Andy, um, I have a quick question about the concept of Super Tuesday. Yes. Um, I spent a bit of time watching it. It seems like it's very complicated. It seems like the candidates that remain have to impress a bunch of delegates. Mm-hmm. And those delegates then come over in clusters or as individuals saying, you're my guy or lady. Um, now, I'm just going to pass on some sort of Eastern election techniques mm-hmm. that we've tried in India for a number of years. <laughs> would love to hear them. So when we do a lot of horse trading for members of parliament, right? Um, and one of the techniques that work when you, when you want delegates to switch parties is to lock them in a hotel room mm-hmm. and bribe them with cash and food. Okay. Uh, instead of Super Tuesday, have you guys thought of trying that? Uh, just outright bribery. <laughs> I I, feel, I kind of feel like that is uh, that's something our president has looked into in various other capacities. Why not bring it into the electoral system? <laughs> Thank you. So Super Tuesday, just to clarify, Andy, it's a lot like what you said about superstition, right? It's like the same kind of super. Like sometimes it goes right, but it is a total coincidence. <laughs> It's super makes it super, I know, as a prefix meaning large, but uh, I don't think that it make it almost has too positive a connotation, right? Because sometimes, oftentimes, it goes very badly and people are very depressed afterwards. So I think we should change it to like big ass Tuesday, <laughs> just <laughs> to convey the same magnitude, but without the, the sense that it's good. So what's what's behind J- Joe Biden's sudden Lazarus like recovery in this uh, <laughs> this contest? Uh you know, I think it is, he's just, he seems kind of like a grandpa and uh, he, his charming on television persona made a lot of people forget that their grandpa would make a bad president. <laughs> I love both of my grandfathers, may they rest in peace, but never once was I like, let's elect this old fella to office. <laughs> well, that's what, what one of the fascinating aspects of this is that you know what what now in what two thousand eight we had uh, you know Obama and Hillary Clinton going for the Democratic nomination. Mm-hmm. It felt like the landscape of politics was changing, and what we've got left now is uh, you know Trump and the two 
Democratic candidates, 70-plus-year-old 70, 70 white men. What, what's happened? Well, it's the same as in entertainment in that we're doing a reboot of something that <laughs> kind of worked 10 years ago. <laughs> Bloomberg uh, had a well a spectacular, but essentially it was a one-day campaign, wasn't it? That at a cost of half a billion dollars, incredible. Um, and uh, because he's a billionaire, when he quit the race, he gave himself another eight hundred million dollar severance package. <laughs> <laughs> so he spent over half a billion dollars, which bought him uh, American Samoa and a family-sized portion of ridicule. Um, <laughs> now the the Democratic mascot is a donkey, and I guess what Bloomberg has learned is that. A presidential nomination is like a donkey in that if you try to steal it, uh, you might end up with shit on your shoes. Uh, you can't just throw money at it and hope it turns into a motorbike, and people will never forget if you f***ed it. <laughs> Josh, I don't know what you think about where modern politics is going, but I was just looking at political speeches. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like in India, we started with the Mahatma Gandhi, who was slightly well-known for saying <laughs> impressive things. And now we have Prime Minister Modi, who speaks of himself in third person, like he's Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. uh, in this country, it seemed like you went from Barack Obama, who used to quote uh, Rilke and Goethe and, and Socrates, mm -hmm to a gentleman who won the primary who got confused between his wife and his sister. <laughs> That's true. It is hard to call it a Super Tuesday when you end up sleeping on the couch, too. <laughs> this is something. Uh, Pierce Bush, the, gr the grandson of George H.W. Bush, lost his congressional race in Texas, which just shows the shift in, in politics in the United States, right? Like, that's how much Texas hates the environment now. They won't even <laughs> vote for a guy named Bush anymore. <laughs> when I read it, I thought it must have been a literal Bush. That's how popular the family was. I thought they were like, everything's bigger in Texas. Come back when y'all are a tree. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, the, he's the first member of the Bush family to lose uh, an election in Texas in over four decades. Mm -hmm. It was a big loss for a member of, uh, a big unexpected loss for a member of the, the Bush family. And people are talking about it as a uh, historic loss to which Al Gore replied, motherfucker, what? <laughs> <laughs> India news now, and uh, well, Anuvab, since since you were last on, India has been um, well treating itself to one of its periodic bouts of mass rioting. Um, can you just uh, bring us up to date with what's been going on, and if possible, in the complex uh, landscape of Indian politics, why it's been going on? Well, you know, I'm I'm glad Andy you brought up the hilarious topic of riots. <laughs> 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 Always a laugh. Um, well, very simply, when Donald Trump was visiting India and he was doing this mass rally at a stadium for 100,000 people, uh, nearby in Delhi, uh, one of the suburbs of Northeast Delhi broke into Hindu and Muslim riots. Um, now, rioting happens in India and there is now in a right-wing government a very anti-Islamic vibe going on in the country, uh, just like everywhere else where there is right-wing homogeneous leaders that are sort of you know, poisoning the environment. Wouldn't know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have heard of this. No. <laughs> uh, so we, we have a right-wing leader in India, uh, Josh. It's just a thing. Maybe it'll catch up in the United States. But um, he comes from the BJP, which mm -hmm. is the ruling party, and they have a sort of thought leadership wing called the RSS. So the RSS are uh, 
pretty right-wing people. By pretty right-wing people, I mean they had the, the, the one of the members of the party was the gentleman that shot Gandhi. Wow. So, so you know, that's that's how much slightly right-wing they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the RSS has been sort of uh, going to really poor Muslim neighborhoods and saying, you know, we're going to clean up Delhi. Uh, we had a, uh, you know, we had a citizenship law that there was some trouble over. So a lot of Muslim people were were uh, protesting against it. And they said, uh, basically, Trump is coming. And if you don't clear the streets, we're going to kill you. Uh, now, when you tend to say that to people, they tend to sometimes get upset mm-hmm. <laughs> and react. Yes. And it gets worse when large Hindu mobs show up with sticks saying, clear the streets of the protest. We are going to shoot you and kill you. And then they proceed to do exactly what they say. Uh, and so that leads to a Muslim retaliation and there are riots. Um, in such a situation, one of the best elements in democratic society are the police. You know, uh, everywhere else in the world, apparently the police are supposed to break up such Mm -hmm. fights. What happened in Delhi is that the police joined the Hindu mobs, which tends to reduce the the fairness a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that goes against the famous NWA song, Trust the Police. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they were listening to the song. So it led to arson, riot, looting on both sides, but there were just a significantly larger number of Muslim casualties. Um, Now... If you want to be bigoted, let's say you want to be right-wing and bigoted, that's your business. Go on. <laughs> that's your, if one wants to be, that's your business. When you do it in India, which has 300 million Muslim people, mm-hmm. so larger than the entire population of the United States, mm-hmm. it tends to be slightly dangerous. Mm-hmm. So no one knows what kind of backlash this would create. But while Trump was going on uh, mispronouncing names of great Indian spiritual Mm -hmm. leaders, Delhi was on fire. So um, I'm really looking forward to the outcome of this uh, when, you know, things have settled down and the Muslim community in India realizes um, this wasn't very nice. And and what the backlash of that is going to be. So it's going to be a really peaceful next 20 years in India. Uh, wow. In in the United States, I think there's kind of a dim awareness of what's going on. And the, I think people are, lo- especially in this in New York City, are kind of lost right at the beginning of the story when you said uh, they wanted to clean up Delhi. And you think here, no one ever cleans a Delhi. <laughs> that is, uh, so I think that that is the first sticking point. It's not just our um, complete lack of awareness of the global landscape and the atrocities committed uh, in other in other nations, but it is it's a bodega thing. <laughs> yeah, as a as a Muslim comedian colleague just said to me recently, I've tried every angle of this, and there is nothing even grimly earnest I can say about it, let alone funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and this is on a podcast where we did forty minutes on viruses. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but it, the great thing was, Andy, Josh, it happened. At the exact same time when President Trump was visiting. Mm-hmm. And President Trump kept saying India is a great country, India is a very peaceful country. And, uh, you know, as you know, Andy, uh, he named a bunch of Indian leaders. He named the great Indian cricketer Sachin Tendulkar, and he pronounced it as Su Chin Tundulkur, uh, which is also a very prominent Chinese restaurant in Mumbai. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, there's yeah. a much better chance that that's what he actually meant. <laughs> that's, that's he wanted to eat there. Uh, he mentioned the great uh, uh, spiritual and Vedic scholar Swami Vivekananda. Uh, tough name to pronounce, but he he went with a special pronunciation. He called him Swami Vivekumundundunda, <laughs> which again is an important Taekwondo class in Bangalore. <laughs> 
<laughs> that I've attended, and there should be a spiritual leader called Swami Vivekamundu Da. Um, so while all this was going on, about forty minutes away, Delhi was on fire. Right, so it just it just seems like we live in a political narrative now, where the thing that is said and the thing you are watching are completely different. On that happy note, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I'm gonna go get a milkshake for breakfast. <laughs> that brings us to the end of this week's bugle. Uh, Josh, do you have any uh, forthcoming stand-up shows or anything else you'd like to alert our listeners to? I do. I'll be in uh, in Boston on the uh, March thirteenth uh, and fourteenth, and I still have a book out called "Nice Try: Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results," and that's available in. Many places. Uh, Anurab, you're doing some some London shows imminently. That is correct, Andy. Uh, I will be at the Soho Theatre doing uh, my last year's Edinburgh show, Democracy and Disco Dancing, uh, from April 27th to May 2nd. Um, and if the virus exists, I will be doing it by hologram. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, don't forget, there is a live Bugle show in Norwich um, on our one-night-only tour of East Anglia on the 4th of April, so do come along to that, any buglers in that part of the universe. Um, thank you very much for listening. Until next week, stay virus-free, and we will play you out with some lies about our premium-level voluntary subscribers. Daniel Grace once jokingly tried to convince a friend that the origin of the term duvet is from the French words duvet, meaning of the vet. This is because in the 14th century, claimed Daniel, vets would make extra money on the side by pretending people's pet ducks were terminally ill, having them put down and then stealing their feathers to use in bedding, hence duvet, later further francophonified to duvet. His friend didn't believe him, but it later turned out that Daniel was accidentally correct. One of the technological developments that David Kluft would like to see is a device which can faultlessly tell the difference between a cucumber and a javelin. This follows a severe embarrassment at his local athletics club's annual all-you-can-eat vegan buffet. Paul Hindle is unconvinced by salad cream as a sauce. I can't even see where you would get salad milk from, complains Paul. I've never seen a lettuce with udders. I think the whole thing is probably a fraud by the big condiment industry. Amanda Lamar believes the time has come for all news outlets to include a plausibility percentage on any article published online or in print. At least let the readers factor in the precise likelihood of what they're reading being bullshit, requests Amanda, and then make an informed decision on whether to believe it or not based on that. Jeff Martin, having been surprisingly given a pantomime horse outfit as a leaving present from a job that had nothing to do with horses or pantomimes, used to thoroughly enjoy wearing the costume amongst other horses, at horse race meetings, for example, or in police horse units and at military parades. He gave up his hobby, however, after a near-miss at a French abattoir. Kev Conroy wonders why the ancient Greeks were so obsessed with vases. From some museums, notes Kev, you'd think that all these old dead bastards did was make vases, put things in vases, and then look at vases. No wonder their civilization collapsed. Alex Selig does not see the point in weightlifting as a sport. It's had its time blasts, Alex. At the very least, it should be a biathlon, in which the lifters should have to prove they can work a forklift truck or crane and do some mechanised lifting as well as manual lifting. Otherwise, it's an almost futile skill in the modern world. 
Derek Snyder scoffs at Alex's suggestion, saying, Yeah, I'd like to see what happens if you ever get pinned to the ground in a natural history museum when a fossilised boa constrictor that died when in an absolutely straight line, with both ends of his body stuck in giant watermelons, falls off a shelf and lands on top of you. And there's an Olympic weightlifter nearby. I imagine you'll be saying, Don't bother taking this off my rapidly collapsing ribcage, I'll wait for the forklift truck to do it. Ed Benyon Pedley, whilst paying tribute to Derek Snyder's commitment to nominative determinism, wishes the world was a calmer place and that people did not descend into needless arguments about trivial matters and hypothetical scenarios such as weightlifting and impossibilities, even when those disputes are entirely fictitious. Here endeth this week's lies. To join our voluntary subscription scheme, go to thebuglepodcast.com and click the donate button.